Welcome back to Ring of Fire. I'm Sam Cedar. If you're just joining us, catch the first hour of our show by subscribing to our podcast. It's free. Go to rofpodcast.com and sign up now. Now let's continue our discussion of this week's biggest news stories. Returning back to the show, Farron Cousins, co-host of Ring of Fire TV on the Free Speech TV Network. So, Farron, in the last hour, we started to talk about the uh, the Democratic race. And uh, the reality is, is that uh, Donald Trump is actually closer to getting 1237 in many respects than Hillary Clinton is in getting the magic number for the Democrats, which is 2383. Now, I want to put a caveat there. The Democrats don't run their uh, primaries like the Republicans. Republicans don't run them like the Democrats. The Democrats also have approximately 700 superdelegates. Now, I, for one, do not believe that we will ever see a situation where the superdelegates um, cast their votes with the, uh, the person who does not achieve the most pledged delegates. Now, you'll recall Barack Obama needed the superdelegates to cross over the threshold of uh, 2,383 in 2008. Um, and Hillary Clinton was only about 130 delegates behind him in terms of the pledged delegates, right. if I remember correctly. And, and she uh, actually uh, uh, had gotten more popular vote than Obama, but but was behind in the delegate count just due to states. So so they could have technically justified, you know, switching to, to Hillary. But. Yes, but I think, look, look, this is a suicide mission, right? right. I mean, the Democratic Party knows they've got to give uh, the superdelegates got to pledge themselves to uh, the, the winner of the pledge delegates. Now, they may declare earlier for somebody else because that's their way of influencing the press and the narrative that somebody's inevitable or not. But I think that only goes so far. I definitely think that people sort of overestimate the relevance of this. I get personally, I get uh, very pissed off when I see mainstream media, including the superdelegates, in with the pledged delegates account, uh, amounts. And we're starting to see a little bit less of that because it's a joke. We, everybody knows the superdelegates are going to go by way of the pledged delegates. So uh, without that, uh, we, you know, with that said, uh, we have elections today in Alaska, or uh, this weekend, I should say, Alaska, Washington, and Hawaii. Washington State, of course, uh, having the... Um, the big, uh, uh, the big uh, prize, 101 delegates. Uh, but, uh, you know, this, is, this race is still mathematically possible for Bernie Sanders. And um, there's no reason for him to drop out until it isn't, as, as far as I'm concerned. Oh, I, I, I agree 100%. I mean, regardless of what happens from this point, Bernie Sanders needs to stay in this race because he's helping to dictate, uh, you know, the, the conversations that are being had. And they're conversations that have to be had. I mean, he has injected a, a level of, of populism and, and honest progressivism into this campaign that we would not have seen had he not entered. So his, his just his presence is, is so vital for this conversation. And he absolutely has a path to victory. And, and I know the campaign has a plan and they're trying to make it happen. Um, but to me, something I feel is getting grossly overlooked is the fact that if you look at Hillary Clinton's uh, victories, the states that she has won, all but three of them have been states that are historically red in presidential elections. Now, that is not at all meant to undermine the voters in those states who picked Hillary Clinton, 
But because of the Electoral College, if those states stay red in 2016, those votes, they almost don't count. And that, that is a problem with the Electoral College. Um, and so it's very dangerous for, you know, Hillary Clinton supporters to, to look at this and say that they have this huge momentum in these states. Uh, uh, Super Tuesday, after Hillary Clinton won, she got up and she gave a speech where she said she has received more votes in every single state than any other candidate running in these primaries. And that is simply not true. That is absolutely a fallacy. Donald Trump received more votes in the state of Ohio than Hillary Clinton. And that is a swing state. And that is important. They were virtually tied in the state of Florida, another huge swing state. Those are important things that people have to start looking at. You know, winning red states in a primary can get you to the nomination, but it's not necessarily going to help you in the general election unless you can flip the state. And, and that is something we do not see very often in elections. Yeah, I mean, I think there's some truth to that. But I mean, look, the reality is this is um, the way that Democrats have run their primaries. It would be sort of it's impossible to imagine uh, that at the beginning of the year, if everybody had said, like, look, we're, we're just not going to go to states that are uh, traditionally red in general elections. We're just not going to count those. Um, I mean, that would be silly. Right. I right. mean, so. Um, but on top of that, from a sort of a practical standpoint, and look, I, I, I mean, I um, uh, I prefer Don, uh, I prefer uh, Bernie Sanders. Um, you know, policies uh, are are more akin to mine. But 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 let's um, you know, let's just sort of analyze this uh, rationally speaking. It's quite possible if Donald Trump is the nominee, uh, there are going to be states that are going to be a lot more available uh, to be flipped. Uh, states like Arizona. Uh, could very well be, uh, could end up being a democratic, uh, state. Um, there are, uh, there are other states, it seems to me, uh, the Indiana, maybe, I don't know, Utah, um, for that matter. Um, I mean, it is, uh, hard to know exactly what's going to happen. So I think to a certain extent, this is the, the, the bottom line is there is no data that really anybody can make a solid case on that Hillary Clinton is more electable in a general election than Bernie Sanders is. I mean, to the extent that there's any data, it shows more or less parity, maybe even that Bernie Sanders uh, polls a little bit better. But I wouldn't put much, invest much in those polls one way or another. I mean, people say, well, Bernie Sanders has not been... Um, you know, has not uh, been under the Klieg lights in a in a national general election. But, you know, uh, Hillary Clinton hasn't either. And we just don't know. We just don't know. You know, we haven't seen a full on attacks against Bernie Sanders. Well, that's true. But we also haven't seen uh, Donald Trump uh, full on attack uh, Hillary Clinton. You can't you cannot. There's no there's simply no data. We can come up with theories. And I certainly uh, could come up with theories where I would think that Bernie Sanders might be more electable because he undercuts uh, someone like Donald Trump's appeal. But we don't know that it's going to be Donald Trump. Uh, for all we know, it could be Paul Ryan. So these electability arguments, I think, are red herrings. I think people should go out there, vote for the person that they think um, is best equipped to uh, represent their views and uh, to execute them. I mean, that's what a primary is about. 
And then, frankly, in the general election, in my opinion, you go out there to vote to keep um, someone like Donald Trump or Ted Cruz or, frankly, Paul Ryan, who would, um, you know, he may be apologizing for every belief he's held uh, that has been represented in every policy that he has uh, promoted for years. But I don't buy it. And uh, if you genuinely are concerned about uh, the least fortunate amongst us, if you're genuinely concerned about social justice and economic justice, um, then, uh, frankly, uh, you know, you should be prepared to vote for uh, an inanimate object against one of these Republicans. I'd vote for a shoe uh, before I would pull the lever for uh, Paul Ryan or Donald Trump or Ted Cruz. But that's just me. Uh, we got to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more on Ring of Fire. Once upon a different light We run our bikes into the sky Welcome back to Ring of Fire. I'm Sam Cedar here with Farron Cousins, the co-host of Ring of Fire TV. So, Farron, uh, of course, we had the um, uh, the Democratic and the Republican primaries. We had a, a lot of turnout. I know you got some of those turnout numbers, but there was also major problems. And I fear that this could be a harbinger for uh, things to come. But major, major um, uh, problems with the voting in Arizona people having to wait five to six hours just to cast a ballot in a primary. And this wasn't an accident. This wasn't because they they predicted lower than average voter turnout. The state of Arizona had cut down the number of polling places by 70%, cut it down from over 200 down to 60. And, you know, with the new restrictive voter ID laws and everything else the state had put in place, which again, is, is all their plan to disenfranchise, you know, Democratic voters, essentially. You know, this is what they were hoping for. This is what they wanted. And so we're going to see more of this, especially in the general election. But here is the silver lining with what happened in Arizona this week. We know about it now. If turnout had been low enough we would not have seen these problems. We would not have recognized them. And that is one reason why it is so important for everyone. I, I don't care if you're, you're, you're a Bernie, you're a Hillary, you have to get out there because we have to expose these problems before November. If we don't know about them, we cannot fix them. Because if this happens in November, this is going to kill the Democratic Party. Because when you look at the, the voting base of the Republicans, you know, uh, they skew older, they're retired, they can wait. They can sit in a line for five hours. When you look at the Democratic uh, voting base with these, you know, uh, college students and the working class people, they don't have that kind of time. You know, a lot of people go vote before they head into work or on their lunch break. They can't sit in lines for hours and hours. So it's only going to benefit Republicans. And that is why for these remaining primaries and caucuses, 
we've really got to get every single able-bodied person out there to cast a vote and let's shine a light on these voting problems before they kill us in November. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, I think the bottom line is, you know, we see this as, um, uh, voting, um, apparatus is one of the first things that are always cut because, um, there's a disregard, particularly, you know, amongst, uh, Republicans. I mean, this is a, uh, I don't think it's a controversial to say that Republicans have, uh, always seen voter suppression as a tactic that benefits them. And, uh, of course, you know, it, it basically allows uh, people to get government on the cheap, uh, but they pay with their democracy. And it's, you know, it's not one of the things that you can pick up and put on your shelf. Uh, it's uh, obviously uh, a, a, you know, a boiling frog scenario. So, yeah, it's very problematic. Um, let me touch on something else that uh, happened this week. Um, to a certain extent, a uh, part of the campaign as well, and that was... Um, the major candidates all addressed uh, APAC, which, of course, is the pro-Likud right-wing, uh, pro-Israel lobby, uh, mainly uh, Republican-supported, um, APAC is. Uh, but they invite all the candidates. Uh, and if for Republicans, apparently, like Newt Gingrich and Mitt Romney, they will allow the candidates to deliver their address by video. But when it comes to Bernie Sanders, no, they wouldn't allow that. So uh, Hillary Clinton spoke in front of AIPAC. She gave a speech and, you know, a lot of people were anticipating, even Hillary supporters, that she would be uh, more to the right than they had hoped, that she would um, uh, uh, that she would might come across as a little bit neoconish. Well, I think even those people who had the worst expectations were even uh, were disappointed by this. I mean, she came off. She was extremely strident. She was uh, attacking President Obama over uh, the successful Iran negotiations. Uh, she was attacking things like, um, you know, uh, protest movements against uh, Israeli uh, settlements. She barely mentioned uh, the word settlements, maybe once in passing. She um, I don't know if she said the word uh, Palestinians. Uh, but uh, when you contrast that with Bernie Sanders speech, which, frankly, I think was the most comprehensive statement he has made uh, on foreign affairs since the beginning of his campaign. I think it was, um, frankly, it came too late. I would have liked to have seen that earlier in the campaign. Maybe he thought this was the one time where he could afford to do it, but he actually uh, dared to say that the Palestinians are human beings um, and have some rights too. And uh, so, of course, this was um, uh, fairly controversial, but only in those very narrow APAC circles. Donald Trump went and spoke and the head of APAC in one of, you know, the, the most disingenuous apologies of the week, uh, short of Paul Ryan's apology, uh, said that he didn't realize how um, inappropriate Donald Trump would be uh, to President Obama. This is laughable on its face. This is the chief um, uh, truther, you know, uh, birther um, uh, of the country. I mean, if, no, if somebody didn't realize that Donald Trump was going to be disrespectful uh, to the president before they got invited, they must have been living under a rock. <laughs> so I don't uh, uh, put much stake in that. But it was fascinating to see Bernie Sanders actually um, uh, make a very um, strong but also cohesive. I mean, uh, this was not just simply he was taking a position, which he did, and a position which I happen to agree with on this uh, Palestinian-Israeli uh, conflict. 
But he gave out, put out a very thoughtful, uh, comprehensive foreign policy statement, which has not been, we have not seen that much of, uh, frankly, from Bernie Sanders. He's been, chose to focus more on uh, a domestic agenda, of course, because that's, you know, that's what he's most interested in, and that's what his campaign has been built upon. But I found that um, pretty impressive. And then just, uh, we just got 60 seconds here, Farron, or actually, I guess 30, but I just want to get this out there. Fascinating story in Harper's uh, Magazine, a report which said that um, uh, writer Dan Baum spoke to uh, John Ehrlichman, who was uh, President Nixon's chief domestic uh, policy advisor, and he asked him about uh, the drug war. And Ehrlichman stopped him and said, don't even, it was all about black people and hippies. (laughs) So uh, there's just something, uh, a little tiny uh, fact or report, I should say, uh, for uh, the week. Chew on that, folks, as, uh, as we move forward. Farron, as always, a pleasure. Thanks so much for helping out this week. Thank you, Sam. Just ahead, David Dayen from The Intercept will be here to tell us about the mysterious lobbying group calling the shots in Washington, D.C., but nobody knows who they represent. We'll be right back on Ring of Fire. When I arrived in my old set of clothes, I was half a world away from my home, and I was hunted by the wolves, and I was heckled by the crows. Darling, do not fear what you don't really know. Folks, the Ring of Fire is sponsored by JustCoffee.coop. That's JustCoffee.coop. If you like fair trade, delicious coffee, tea, or chocolate, head over to JustCoffee.coop. Use the coupon code MAJORITY and get 10% off. There's free shipping. You have no reason not to get this great coffee. It's a great outfit in Madison, Wisconsin, which supported the protests there. JustCoffee.coop. Welcome back to Ring of Fire. I'm Sam Cedar. The Commercial Energy Working Group is one of the many lobbyist groups in Washington that influences our government officials, but with one major catch. Nobody knows who they represent. Here to tell us why this breaks federal lobbying laws is investigative journalist from The Intercept, David Dan. So, David, one of the themes of President Obama's election in 2008 was the idea of transforming the way Washington works, right? We were going to get rid of uh, lobbyists. The revolving door was going to be uh, stopped. That didn't uh, quite work out. And, you know, maybe it was a certain naivete on the part of voters. Maybe it was a certain naivete on the part of President Obama. Maybe uh, just harder to do than uh, one thinks. And, uh, you know, I'm going to try and stay positive on that. But one of the, I guess, the interesting elements of, of, of the attempts anyways to cut down on the relationship between government and lobbyists was that it sort of created this, I don't know, shadow category of, of people who are lobbyists but not really lobbyists. And um, you wrote in The Intercept about one of these, the Commercial Energy Working Group. What is that? That's a very good question, Sam, uh, because we don't quite know what it is. Uh, What we do know 
is that there is this group called the Commercial Energy Working Group. They are affiliated with a law firm called Sutherland Asbill, one of the big law firms out in Washington. And every time they, you know, this is a group that sends comment letters, that, that tries to influence legislators on uh, ideas uh, and, and issues that are central to uh, commercial energy producers and uh, things of that nature. Get even a little bit more specific than that, if you could. Right. I mean, what does that mean? That they that are means, that, that means things like, uh, for example, the the position limits rule on excessive speculation in commodities that the Commodities Futures Trading Commission is dealing with. Uh, it means derivatives legislation and regulation. Uh, along the lines of uh, things that the SEC puts together or the Federal Reserve. It has to do with uh, energy producers that uh, perhaps are trading uh, futures contracts or they are uh, uh, end users. In other words, they are actual physical producers, and uh, they want relaxations on their business and the way in which they trade commodities, things of that nature. So when we when we hear commercial energy working group, what we should really hear is sort of the financialization of energy working group. Yeah, I mean this I is would, not I would say about that's the case. This okay, because but, right. but you know it's divisions of the actual producers division. I mean it, what we think is it's divisions of Shell and BP and you know these large energy companies. However, we can't say with any specificity any of that because. When these, uh, this working group sends a comment letter, it always says, Sutherland Asbill on behalf of the Commercial Energy Working Group. And then if you look anywhere in, in any kind of filings, it doesn't say who the actual members of the Commercial Energy Working Group are, and that violates federal law, at least according to public citizens. Uh, that violates uh, specifically the 2007 law that actually was signed by George W. Bush the Open uh, Honest Leadership and Open Government Act, which uh, was supposed to force disclosure of any company that contributes over $5,000 in any one quarter to a lobbying effort. This company, the, this group, the Commercial Energy Working Group, had received $130,000 in in contributions in 2015. However, it has not disclosed any of this, any of the members. And uh, we, we can sort of discern by association who some of the members of the group are because there are public documents showing that when the Commercial Energy Working Group has a meeting with a federal agency, that there are members from Shell or from a, a, a company called Next Era Energy present. But we don't, they have not said for sure who's a member of the group and who isn't. So who's supposed to be <clears throat> regulating this? I mean, these are people who are basically lobbying regulators, right? I mean, yeah. who who's regulating the, the people who are yeah, lobbying I mean, the regulators. This is the problem. And uh, it wasn't until Public Citizen filed a formal complaint with the House and the Senate, because at least they would have some oversight uh, over this. It's their law uh, in terms of the lobbying registration. They apparently aren't doing it themselves, but because it wasn't until Public Citizen actually filed that, that that this was ever brought up as an issue. Interestingly enough, 
This thing has been around for several years. It was at a separate law firm as the working group of commercial energy firms. And then it, it switched, I, I believe the, the sort of uh, uh, lobbyist slash lawyers, the ringleader behind the effort, changed firms. And so he brought it along with him, but changed the name. It's kind of like the Judean People's Front and the People's Front of Judea. But wait a second. So is there no agency? I mean, I'm sort of shocked it's never even occurred to me to ask anybody. But is there no agency? Is there no cops on this beat, essentially? I mean, is it supposed to be Congress that is that is actually, like, re- right. actually regulated? Right, not officially an enforcement agency. However, the, you know, when public citizens sent this bulletin to actually investigate this, they sent it to the clerk of the Senate and the clerk of the House. Uh, it, it seems to me that there is no other agency that sort of has the, the primary oversight responsibility for actually checking to see whether lobbying firms are complying with these laws but it's not just lobbying firms too right i mean it's like there could be tons of people out there who are actually lobbying they just don't call themselves lobbyists right i guess i always there's, assume there's a whole group of shadow lobbyists uh you know lee fong has probably done the best work on this one of my colleagues at the intercept uh about people who don't register but they're effectively doing lobbying for uh, toward congress I mean, I suppose it's, it's up to the agencies that are being lobbied, uh, uh, whether it's Congress or uh, the federal agencies, to do the double-check. But it does not seem that, that the, the enforcement responsibility is put in the hands of any sort of independent third party. The, I mean, this is uh, stunning. I mean, because what's supposed to happen? We're supposed to see, like, there's going to be a congressman who's going to go down and do some shoe leather on this and, 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 and figure it out. I mean, this seems, um, and, and so is the There's point a is that we level have at Congress that does have, you know, the, 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 the clerk of the Congress, there are some, some, you know, various, uh, constituencies that you could appeal to, but, uh, that, you know, they're not typical enforcement agencies, uh, by any stretch. So when you sit down and write this, is the issue um, uh, for you, or at least, uh, you know, when you think about this as a story, is it that this is indicative of perhaps a greater problem that we have in terms of there being no cop on the beat? Or is it that we also don't know what this specific group is up to and what they could be doing could be incredibly destructive? Right. I mean, we know what this specific group is up to in, in some sort of abstract sense. We, we, we have the comment letters. We know what they're pushing for. Uh, it's just the brazenness that we have a law that says if you're a lobbying trade organization, if you're a, a, a coalition, you need to disclose your members. And this organization just doesn't. And, and, and they're not looking for a loophole or they're not looking you know, for some, some, some way to burrow into the law, they're just not doing it. And it's just kind of the come-and-make-me defense. And so that, I found, just the brazenness of that was enough to make this somewhat newsworthy. And you're getting at a, a, a key secondary issue, which is that it's kind of the you-and-what-army defense. Who is actually <laughs> going to 
stop them from not disclosing their members. And, and, you know, you can certainly come up with parallel circumstances where it would be more insidious to, that you would want to really find out the names of the membership uh, in an organization, maybe if it was a retail-facing business and, and you wanted to express your displeasure with them lobbying for tax breaks or whatever it was, if you didn't know who it was, that would be a problem. This is why we put the law together in the first place. The fact that you know, this organization is being so brazen about it is, is, is really troubling. Yeah, I mean they're saying come and get me except for they're just they're just sort of like uh, whistling it into the into the ether because there's really no one there uh whose responsibility it is to come and get them. Uh, I can imagine too that if uh, they get away with this uh this one time somebody else is going to get away, get the idea that they can also get away with it. All right, we got to take a quick break. David, when we come back, I want to uh shift topics uh, for a moment if we could to uh, a, a piece that you uh, wrote, uh, and you're incredibly prolific. Uh, it's not only um, a chain of title, your book, uh, which is, uh, I just got my reader copy and uh, people can pre-order, but you just wrote uh, a piece uh, the other day entitled Forget Trump. Here's who's really destroying the Republican Party. I want to touch on that because it dovetails with something that we were talking to Digby about earlier in the program. We got to take a quick break. We'll be right back with David Dan on Ring of Fire. We're back on Ring of Fire. I'm Sam Cedar. Right now, I'm talking with investigative journalist David Dan from The Intercept. So, David, uh, before the break, you were telling us this story of a, a lobbying group that is basically, I don't know, uh, just basically flipping off the U.S. government and flouting our laws about lobbying. And there doesn't seem to be anyone to chase them down. I mean, there doesn't seem to be anybody whose responsibility it is to actually um, go and, I don't know, enforce the law that Congress has passed. I mean, theoretically, I guess Congress you know, could send a staffer down there and say, hey, you're not doing what we told you to do. But that doesn't seem to happen very often. But I want to just pivot slightly to uh, another aspect of Congress. You wrote in the Fiscal Times this week, forget Trump. Here's who's really destroying the Republican Party. And I think this point is so important because there's so much press out there about how Donald Trump is altering what the Republican Party about. And, and Donald Trump is the catalyst for a real problem in the Republican Party. But Donald Trump is a symptom and not a cause of what's going on with the Republicans. And you touch on that in this piece. Talk to us about who is the uh, really responsible right. for destroying the Republican Party. Well, uh, in this piece, I make the case that it's the House Freedom Caucus. And they're, of course, a symptom as well. But who I'm talking about is a caucus of about 40 members in the House of Representatives. Most famously, they are the ones responsible for kicking John Boehner out of the Speaker's chair. Uh, he finally resigned last year, and Paul Ryan replaced him. And at issue during that whole confrontation was this idea that, you know, it was over the budget and, and, and things of this nature that the Freedom Caucus wanted to sort of hold the country hostage for very right-wing ideological demands and basically try to run the government from a, a, a rump faction of 40 
members in the House, even though they didn't have the presidency and they didn't have, even though they, even if they had the Senate, they didn't have the sort of ideological caucus of similar numbers in the Senate. So here we go. Uh, Paul Ryan comes in and, you know, problem solved, right? Wrong. Uh, uh, the exact same things that were present before uh, Ryan took over are present again. In fact, uh, the House basically abandoned this attempt to pass a budget resolution, which is kind of the fundamental thing they do every year. They're not going to do it this year because the Freedom Caucus decided they were opposed to it because it spent $30 billion too much in discretionary spending. So the exact same fundamental divide between the unyielding Freedom Caucus and the more pliable but still very conservative establishment wing of the Republican Party, it still exists. And it, this was, has been going on since well before Trump ever came on the scene. And so I think if, you, if you're talking about what has changed in the Republican Party or what is driving all these forces, you have to you know, make room for this argument about the Freedom Caucus, which is this faction that refuses to own up to any political realities and thinks by sheer force of will and stubbornness that they can get everything that they want, regardless of what uh, elections actually uh, uh, dictate. Now, when you talk about them having this sort of stubbornness and they think that they can get what they want, I mean, do they actually, I mean, when we look at them as human beings, do they actually or do they say to themselves, it's in my best interest right. to be this way That's in terms of I mean, what? I, can't, I can't look into their soul, but certainly, and this, is, this really gets at the point, the fundamental issue in the Republican Party right now is that the forces politically reward taking that confrontational, yes. no-holds-barred stance. And we've seen that with Trump, we've seen that with Ted Cruz, and we've seen it with the Freedom Caucus. And that is sort of institutionally, that's how you acquire power in the Republican Party. And if that's the case, then you're inevitably going to come up against this major split because it's actually, you know, it remains to be seen whether it's good for the party as a whole, certainly not in presidential elections. Now, we haven't seen really this, this become a problem congressionally yet, but certainly in presidential elections, taking that maximalist position has not proven to be something that is rewarded by all voters as yes. a whole. But it's rewarded right, which, by the small subset of voters that yes. you need in your right-wing congressional district to be successful. We only have we only have a, a minute or so left, but I want to I want to just make two points, and I'll give you hopefully a, a couple of seconds to respond. <laughs> well, one is that uh, you're right. It's certainly I think a detriment to them in terms of broad national uh, elections. But we have seen that whatever they're engendering is helping Republicans, it appears, in states, in terms of state houses, in terms of governorships, in terms of Congress. Now, the other point is, is that while it's going to hurt them nationally, which could end up hurting them in, the, in, in Congress, the people who are going to lose their jobs, if they're Republicans and they lose because Donald Trump is a disaster for the Republicans, I'm not saying that's going to be the case, are the people on the other side of that divide. In other words, 
when Donald Trump takes down part of the Republican Party with him, it's actually going to empower the Freedom Caucus because those are the people who will not lose their jobs. That's absolutely true. And the the best example of that is the fact that John Boehner left Congress. His seat was up to replace him. And a Tea Party guy who is going to join the Freedom Caucus won that seat. There you go. So that's how this is moving. And, and, and I don't see really a, a way out of this for, for Republicans. Uh, for a long it, it, you're time. You're just seeing this, this rift between yep. the party get wider and wider. It's going to get uglier before it gets better, folks. David Dayen, always a pleasure. Thanks so much. I cannot wait. I cannot wait <laughs> to read your, uh, your book. I've got it sitting in front of me right now. People can pick it up. It's chain of title. How three ordinary Americans uncovered Wall Street's great foreclosure fraud. It's coming out in May, folks. You can go pre-order it. Uh, do it now. Thanks again, David. Thanks. Test is next week. David Dane is a contributing writer for The Intercept, Salon.com, and The Fiscal Times. His new book, Chain of Title, How Three Ordinary Americans Uncovered Wall Street's Great Foreclosure Fraud. Released in May and is available now for pre-order on Amazon.com. Use our link on the bottom right of our website, ringoffireradio.com, and Ring of Fire Radio will receive a portion of the proceeds. That's it for this week's Ring of Fire. Hey, don't forget that you can go to rofpodcast.com and sign up for our free one-hour podcast. And if you want the full three-hour show, commercial-free, become a member and support the show. We need you to keep this show going. You'll get full access to Ring of Fire content, and you'll help us thrive. If you become a member this week, you'll get the full interview with Bobby Kennedy and Tim Dickinson on the Koch brothers' attempt to shut down solar power. On behalf of Mike Papantonio, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., I'm Sam Cedar. We'll see you next week. I worried, I went three times my body. I worried. I throw my fear out